pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Tonight we're diving in again into uh, chapter 9. And I ask you what I've been asking you for a long time. Open our minds to understand the scriptures so that we might know you. By knowing the word, we know the son. By knowing the son, we know the father. By knowing the father, we have eternal life. So Father, tonight, use your word to reveal who you are and the power of your word to reveal who we should be. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 9 continues with Paul's conversation about collecting money. <laughs> you thought you were done with that part. He's collecting money for the suffering believers in Jerusalem, and Paul gives practical advice on the art of giving. Let's start chapter 9, verse 1. I really don't need to write to you about this ministry of giving. Now, and the focus, don't miss the focus, for the believers in Jerusalem. For I know how eager you are to help. And I have been boasting to the churches in Macedonia that you, in Greece, were ready to send an offering a year ago. In fact, it was your enthusiasm that stirred up many in, uh, of the Macedonian believers to begin with, to begin giving. But I am sending these brothers. Now, he's sending a letter, but he is sending people. Don't, don't read over that. I'm sending these brothers to be sure that you are ready. That you really are ready. Ready for what? He's talking about this giving to the church in Jerusalem that's suffering. I'm sending these brothers to be sure that you really are ready, as I have been telling them, and that your money, and that your money is all collected. I don't want to be wrong in my boasting about you. We would be embarrassed, not to mention your own embarrassment, if some Macedonian believers came with me and found that you weren't ready after all I told them about you being ready and having all the money set aside. I've added that part, but that's what he's talking about. Verse 5. So I thought I should send these brothers ahead of me to make sure the gift you promised is ready. But I want it to be a willing gift, not one given grudgingly. The first thing that came to my mind when I read this on top of chapter 8 is this. How much time and letters and words and volume Paul's given to this topic in proportion to the other topics? It's huge. Do, do you recognize this? We're in the second chapter, chapter 8, chapter 9. The volume of words he's using for this outweighs many of the other topics he talks about. Now that's interesting to me. He's putting a lot of his name and time and influence and apostolic authority inside this issue. Paul is using his apostolic authority to send brothers, not just write a letter. He's dispatching people to Corinth to make sure the church is ready to give. Even though Paul uses his position of authority... He still wants it to be willing and not grudging. Even though I can tell he's putting the hammer down. Did you see it? He's putting the hammer down. Okay, guys, 
get your wallets out. He's, he's saying, I want that money ready when they arrive there. Why? I can imagine, and I'm just, uh, I'm just imagining that Paul had made commitments to Jerusalem, I'm bringing help. They're, they're suffering. I'm going to tell you what, you didn't want to be in Jerusalem in that first century church. You know, they're stoning Stephen. They're dragging him out of town dead. People are fleeing. Everybody except the apostles has left town. It's in the book of Acts. They're running for their lives. And the ones that are there, they're cut off from society. Socially, economically, they're cut off. They're struggling. They're struggling to stay alive. Coming to Jesus cost you just about everything in the first century in Jerusalem. And I can guess that Paul said, I'm going to go to these Gentile churches and I'm going to bring some help back. That's my guess. And that's what he's going to do. Is that okay? This man's led by the Holy Spirit. He's called by God. Yeah, it's okay. It's good. The body's in need. Help them. Now Paul gives a spiritual and a physical truth. And we're going to spend some time on it tonight. Paul, don't miss the context. If you miss the context, you're going to miss this. We've left chapter 8 talking about giving. We're in chapter 9. We're still giving, collecting an offering for these. And then he brings up something physical to prove the spiritual seeds seeds verse 6 remember this a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop are we talking about farming no you must each decide in your heart how much to give and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. Well, he just gave them pressure. I just read it. But don't let that be the reason you're doing it. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And God, and I want to focus on verse 8, so pay close attention to every word I read. And God will generously provide all you need, then... You will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. Now, I don't want you to raise your hand, but I'm going to ask you a question. I'm just going to take one verse, verse 8, and I'm going to ask you a question. And I'll, ask me, I'll answer it myself to, in my own heart before I'll ask you to take the test. Here it is. Do you believe that? God will generously provide all you need what are we talking about his his illustration is seed so if you're a farmer all the seeds you need for the crop today and the crop of the future he'll give you the seeds you can't make seeds nobody knows how to make seeds so where do you get seeds god will give generously to provide for all you need. Look at the second part. Then, then, after generous God gives you seeds, he gives you something to start with. Until he shows up with the seeds, you don't have anything to start with. You're a farmer standing there looking at the field with nothing to do. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to do what with? 
to give away. I'll ask you again. Do you believe that? Do you live that in your life? Verse 9. As the scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. Do you know how seeds work? I'm not going to get too agricultural or scientific because I don't know either. But I, um, I did grow up on a farm and I've spent a lot of time gardening and planting and um, I understand the premise. But let me, let me be specific with the question. Do you know how a seed works? You know, to this day, science cannot identify how a seed does it. They can tell you what it does. Don't get me wrong. But nobody knows how it does it. I read an article where when they opened up one of those tombs in Egypt, in one of those pyramids, they found a container of seeds. Now, that's thousands of year old seeds laying in a dusty crypt. Crypt. And you know what they did with those seeds? They took that seed and they took it out and put it in the dirt and the thing spread. Now, I'm like, how? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. I'll tell you what, if you knew, you could be a seed maker. Uh, you'd be a rich dude, too. I can tell you that. Just go make your own seeds. Nobody knows how. But I'll tell you what we do know. A seed must die before it can do what it is designed to do. When you take a piece of corn, a, corn, a kernel of corn seed, seed corn, and put it in the ground, you know what it does? It dies. It actually dies, deteriorates, and breaks open. It deteriorates to the point that it can be transformed into something else. The seed corn turns into a plant of corn, but not until it dies. It has to die before it can turn into the form of its design. It has to die first. Every seed you plant in the ground. You see, anybody see a spiritual picture? Jesus is planted in the ground. Anybody see a picture? The seed has to die first before it can reproduce a harvest. A seed has to die, and then as it comes to life. Now, nobody takes one kernel of seed corn and puts it in the dirt and waters it so that a plant will come up and give you back one kernel of corn. You got this ear and you open it all up and there's one little kernel and you say, whoa. No, you wouldn't. You say, I should have stayed in the house. Why? Because you didn't plant one to get one, did you? You planted one because you believe that the seed dies and reproduces mathematical multiplication. It doesn't, come in, it doesn't come back in the form in which it dies. It comes back better. It comes back more. The death of our seeds. So Paul's given us a lesson here. He's gone from giving to a church in Jerusalem to farmers who plant a 
few seeds get a little bitty crop. And farmers that plant a bunch of seeds get a great big crop. Why is he doing this? Here's why. The death of our seeds happens when we give them away. You and I have been given seeds by God. This church in Corinth has given seeds by God. And that seed, Paul says, I'm going to come and get it. I'm going to come and get your seeds and carry them to Jerusalem, and they're going to multiply, 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 multiply into a harvest. And God's going to turn around because you gave those seeds, and he's going to give you a bunch more seeds so that the next time you're going to give away more seeds than you gave away the first time, and there's going to be more and more and more and more multiplication. I'm going to ask you again, do you really believe this? Because that's what I just read up there, and all of you gave me the look like you believed it. You hold a seed, you get a kernel of corn seed in your hand, and you hold it in your hand, and it'll never produce anything for you to eat. You want to let go of that corn. You let to throw it on the ground and put it in the dirt and let it die before it can become what it's supposed to be. You and I have been given seeds, wealth, things, time, energy, talents, whatever you didn't make yourself he gave it to us and the thing is until I let go of that which I have received it'll never multiply I gotta let it go I gotta let it go I remember last week we talked about that Moses has a stick what's in your hand quit worrying about what you don't have Lord I don't have well don't worry about what you don't have what do you do have? What do you have? I got a stick. Moses, God took the stick. Moses, threw it down on the ground. Came a serpent. Hold it out over the sea. Let God take what you have. Offer it to him and let him use it for your glory, for his glory. David's got a stone. Mary had perfume. But in all the cases, it's the same thing. If you hoard... Did you hear me? If you hoard what you've been given. Because it makes you feel secure because you got a bunch of seeds at the house. In fact, you run out of room at the house to put seeds, so you went to the bank. And you stored up a bunch of seeds at the bank. And then you got a 401k and you put some seeds in it. And you got all these seeds. Paul says, until you let go of some of those seeds, they will never multiply. They will never produce. I didn't write it, so quit giving me those funny looks. Y'all Y'all were doing okay till I brought up 401k. <laughs> I can read, y'all. Then I got the eye, the one eye. The one who did that. That's when God steps in and he does what only he can do. You know what he does? He multiplies the harvest. He takes one seed and he turns it into a thousand. But nobody's one seed ever got turned into a thousand while it was in their hand. It only got turned into a thousand when they let go of it. Paul then quotes 
Psalms 112.9. Do you see? Go back up there and look at verse 9. <coughs> what did Paul say? Paul says, and the scriptures say, you know where he got that? He got it from Psalms 112 verse 9. Here's what he's quoting. They share freely and give generously to those in need. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. They will have influence and honor. You know, when I read that, you know what came to my mind? Jesus saying, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy and thieves can break in and steal. But store up treasures in heaven. Why? You got to let go of some of the seeds. Do you remember the first recorded Gentile that received Christ and the Holy Spirit in the church age? I do. He's one of my heroes. His name's Cornelius. Do you know how the Bible describes him? Now, I'm going to pause in 2 Corinthians because I'm going to take off on this point. you know how the Bible describes this Gentile? He's a seed sower. Now, I want to tell you, before I read it, if you're God in heaven and you're going to pick the first Gentile to get the Holy Spirit, wonder what the criteria would be. Now, listen, I don't suppose to know God's thought on this, but I think he thought it through. He picked Cornelius. Why? I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to read it to you. Acts chapter 10. In Caesarea, by the way, when I was in Israel, I said Caesarea, and everybody there corrected me and said, it's Caesarea. And I said, no, it's Caesarea. <laughs> so... We're in Bertie in, in Anderson County. It's, it's Caesarea. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman officer, army officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of an Italian regiment. Now, let me just tell you, he's a Gentile. He's not Jewish. He was devout, God-fearing man. And as was everyone in his house, household, he gave generously to the poor. Uh-oh, uh-oh. He's a seed sower. And he prayed regularly to God. One afternoon, about 3 o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? He asked the angel. And the angel replied, your prayers and gifts. Notice the two things. Your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by who? Who got the gift? I read in that other verse he's given gifts to the poor. And now he stands with an angel in front of him and says, Your prayers and gifts have been received by God. God's getting the glory. They've been received by God. As an offering. Now, Cornelius, send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying with Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. As soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants. He told them what had happened and sent them off to Joppa. Now, let's look at the criteria. Devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to the poor and he prayed regularly to God. 
Cornelius was a seed sower. He's not a seed keeper. He's not a seed hoarder. And God has sent an angel to talk to this guy in the church age. Are you with me? This is in the church age. You don't get a lot of angel visits in the church age. God is sent to a Gentile, a non-Jewish guy. Cornelius was a giver. I'm going to ask you a question. because this, this is kind of the foundation tonight. Where do you think Cornelius got his seeds? He's given offerings to the poor. Let's call the offering seeds, okay? Where did he get them? We, we know they ended up at the poor, and they ended up in the presence of God, and God sees them as an offering, sends an angel down there to commission Cornelius with an assignment. Where did Cornelius get the seeds? God gives the seeds. Where do you get seeds? You're going to say, well, I work for Toyota. I work for Universal Fasteners. Where did they get the seeds? Where did the seeds come from? God chose Cornelius to be the first Gentile family to receive the Holy Spirit after the church began. Based on what? Again, there's some supposition in here, and that's okay. Based on what? Let's keep going. Verse 44. Even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. Now, I kind of jumped over the fact that Cornelius arrives at Peter's house. Okay? The Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on Gentiles too. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter asked, can anyone object to them being baptized? Now that they have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. So he gave orders for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And afterwards, Cornelius asked him to stay with them for several days. What, did, what was the criteria that God revealed that picked Cornelius to be the first guy? He's a giver. He's a giver. He's a seed sower. You and I hold our future in our hands. We hold our future. The seeds that God has given us are to be sown for His glory into our future. I don't know whether you know it or not, whether you even want to admit it or not, but I'm going to tell you the truth. In the last year, you and I have been sowing seeds for our future. And if you're not sowing any seeds, your future's not looking too hot. Paul, not me, Paul under the Holy Spirit says, a farmer that sows a few seeds gets a little harvest. But a farmer that sows a lot of seeds gets a big harvest. What are you all anticipating in your future? Huh? What are you going to get? You, you expecting something big in your future? Is this, just, is this about money? If you think this is just about money, you're still not getting it. Can money be part of it? Yeah, money can be part of it. Paul, 
Paul's collecting money. It's real money. He's not getting seeds. He's getting money to take to Jerusalem. We hold our future in our hand. Why? Who do we believe God is? God multiplies the harvest of seeds. <coughs> we don't. God does. Let's go on to verse 10. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer. In case you were wondering, I asked the question three or four times, where'd you get the seeds? For God is the one who provides seeds for the farmer. And then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide an increase. He will provide and increase your resources. Let me ask you again. Do you believe that? He will provide and increase your resources. And then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. Verse 12. So two good things will result from the ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met and they will joyfully express their thanks to God. God is a seed maker. God is a seed giver. God will increase the harvest of our seeds if we sow them for his glory. Hoarding seeds will never produce a harvest. Notice the two things in verse 12. The needy believers in Jerusalem will be blessed. Number one, a physical thing will happen on the earth. And number two, something will happen in heaven. God will receive glory. Both will happen after what? After you take that which was given to you and let go of it. Let go of it. Verse 13. As a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God. Who? The Jerusalem church. For your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ. What, what proves that you're obedient to the good news of Christ? Come on. What, it, what is it? What did you just say? What would be the proof that the Corinth church is obedient to Christ. They're givers. And they will pray for you. Who? Who? The Jerusalem church. Will then pray for the church at Corinth. <coughs> with deep affection. Because of the overflowing grace God has given to you. Thank God for this gift too wonderful for words. Glory to God is the result of our obedience to God. Who gets the glory? And by the way. Bible specifically says don't let the left hand know what the right hand's giving. So while you're out sowing seeds and giving away seeds, quit doing it for show. Don't do it for show. If you do it for show, the only reward you're going to get is that second. You won't get a future harvest. You blew it. But if you'll do it in secret, God will see it in secret and reward you in public. He'll reward you in the future. And who'll get the glory? He will. He'll get the glory. <clears throat> the seed receivers in Jerusalem are going to then do something. Paul says they will turn around after opening up the, the gift. 
they will turn around and pray for the church at Corinth. What do you think God will do with that prayer? What do you think God will do with that prayer? He's going to send more seeds to Corinth. Do you see how it works? Do you see how it works? Do you believe it actually works this way? Thank God for this gift too wonderful for words. This is the real point in all of this. It's not about money. Seeds in this illustration are life. You've been given life. I've been given life. Right now we're inhaling and exhaling life. Life is in us. Where'd you get it? Where'd you get it? Bill Nye said you got it from, I forgot, somewhere, right? Where'd you get it? Bill Nye, the science guy, you got it from ice crystals that floated across the universe, Martians, somewhere. Where'd they get it? I don't know. First time you meet a Martian, ask him, where'd you get it? So where, where did you get it? You see, this is not about seeds and it's not about money. What is it about? What's it about? It's about life. I told you that, that that thousands of years old seed that came out of that Egyptian tomb had life in it. How in the world does it have life in it? Nobody knows. And nobody can make seeds. You can make hybrids. You can take a seed and a seed and mix them together and make a hybrid seed, but you can't make a seed from nothing. Nobody's been able to do it. Why? Same reason nobody can make a person. Because you don't know how to make life. There's only one that knows how to make life. He's the life giver. He's the life sustainer. He's the one who promises forever life. Seeds are life. This gift, too wonderful word for words, is called life. I've had the, uh, I wouldn't say opportunity, I've had the, I've been there on a whole lot of occasions. Gosh, I can't imagine how many occasions I've been and watched life come out of people. And I've watched how people struggle for life. Strain for life. And I've watched people who love the person who's straining for life and how old how they desire for life to stay in them. Maybe right now, how you value this seed called life is like this. But I can tell you, everybody in the room, including Terry Cooper, there's a day coming when the value of that thing, that seed called life, will be everything. It will be everything. It will be everything. There will be nothing that stands in comparison to the value of this seed called life. Nothing else will equate. What would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and he loses his own soul? If you lose your life, what would be the value? What would you give in exchange for your soul? What would you give in exchange on that day? What would you trade for your life? Nothing. You wouldn't trade anything. In fact, you'd trade everything to get it back. And the question isn't about that day, because that day is secure. Let me tell you what, everybody will be the same. Everybody will be equal on that day, because everybody wants life. The question is, what do you think about life today? What do you think about that seed today? 
What are you doing with those seeds that you're getting right now, today? Really? You want to know what you believe about God? Answer this question. What are you doing with the seeds you got this year? The life you've been given this year, how have you spent it? Are you spending it on you? You're a seed hoarder. That's not very nice, but it's true. You're a seed hoarder. You hold, I hold my life and my futures in my hands. Which means if I, if I sow a bunch of it, a large portion of my life I sow, I release, I let go of it. I let go of it for the glory of God. I, 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 I let it go. Sow it. Let her fly. What? I'm affecting my future. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? They're going to rot. But store up treasures in heaven. Jesus said that. Can somebody tell me how you would actually do that? UPS? FedEx? How are you going to get treasure in heaven? Does UPS run there on Saturdays? How, how are you going to get a treasure in heaven? You know, it's, I say it to be silly, but you know how you do it? Do what Cornelius did. God sent an angel and talked to him. He gave gifts to the poor. And he always had enough. So he took anything above his need and shared it with others who had needs. Crazy thought. You ever read, I've been studying, I've just finished a total new study on the book of Acts. And the thing that amazed me about the book of Acts would absolutely scare the modern church to death. They shared everything they had. Everything they had. Somebody would say, well, that's socialism. No, that's Jesus followers. It didn't mean you give it to the government and let the government share it. That's socialism. The church took care of themselves. They took care of each other. Nobody had a need that wasn't met. I have no idea where I was at. Oh, I'm opening up chapter 10. Here we go. Chapter 10 opens with Paul clarifying and defending his apostolic ministry. Verse 1. Now I, Paul, appeal to you with the gentleness and kindness of Christ. Though I realize you think I am timid in person and bold only when I write you from far away. Reminds me of modern day social media. Somebody's a wimp until you give them a phone. And suddenly they look like they're a lion. Well, I am begging you now so that when I come, I won't have to be bold with those who think we act for human motives. Do you envision Paul? How do you envision, when you read these letters, do you envision him as timid and weak, or do you envision him as bold and strong? When I read verse 2, I can hear my dad say, don't make me stop his car and come back there. When I read this, you know what I hear? He says, I wrote that letter, and some of y'all think that I am weak in person and strong with an ink pen. Don't you make me come down there. Paul is not driven by human or personal motives. What's driving him? The Holy Spirit. Next verse, verse 3. 
<clears throat> we are human. But we don't wage war as humans do. We use godly, we use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. I want you to focus on that sentence. We destroy. Paul is, is acting like one of the roles of the church is to destroy any proud obstacle that would keep people from knowing God. And keep that in your mind. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. And after we have become fully obedient, we will punish everyone who remains disobedient. That's that thing called church discipline. He was big on that. This is a spiritual battle for the eternal souls of man. Paul gets it. This is life and death. This is war. And in war, people die. And in war, some people don't make it. And he knows that. If we fight merely with human strength, we will all die. Do you see Paul's apostolic authority coming out? I do. He says this, we knock down the strongholds of human reasoning. So I, I, I thought about that. When I read that, I thought, what would be an example of that? We knock down a stronghold of human reasoning. So could I find a, a New Testament example that is relevant today? Uh, yeah, and I did. What is a stronghold today that would keep people from knowing God? I could think of several, but I found one, the first one that just came to my mind immediately. I didn't even have to think. It came to my mind immediately. Paul goes to Athens, Greece, in the book of Acts, and he preaches at Mars Hill, and he preaches to the Stoic philosophers. You know what that really means? All the smart people. He goes to the intellectual elites of Greece. And he talks to them. And he's going to use his apostolic authority to tear down the strongholds that would keep them from knowing God. What would one of those be? Let's see. It's a real life, modern day challenge. I'll tell you, I'll give you a hint. Acts 17, 24. Paul looks at these people, these philosophers. And by the way, I should say this. <coughs> he traveled through Athens. Anth Athens. Why am I having a hard time saying that? Greece. He traveled through Greece and he went through Greece and you know he saw thousands of idols, thousands of gods. And they even had one God in case they missed one, what? It says to the unknown God, just in case we left somebody out. And Paul looks at this and says, What is it? that is keeping you from knowing the one true God. Well, what is it? What is it? Here we go. Paul says, he is the God who made the world. He's singular, isn't he? he? He, singular, is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives what? He himself is the life giver. He gives life and breath 
and everything, and he satisfies every need. Here it comes, here it comes. What, what, what stronghold does Paul need to knock down in Athens? From one man, he created all nations through the whole earth. Did you hear me? From one man. Who would that be? Adam. He created all the nations of the earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined the boundaries of each nation in advance. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and exist. And some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. Now, what was the stronghold that Paul saw a need to tear down? One God who created one man. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What's the stronghold in the modern American church? Listen, you know how many people go to church? In fact, it's more, I'm, I'm facing more and more and more and more of this. No matter where I preach, I'm telling you what, I'm getting, I'm getting the kickback. You know how many people sit in church and believe in evolution? How many Bible colleges believe in evolution? And when, let, me, let me qualify what I mean by evolution. That they discount that there was God making a man. He made Adam from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living being. And from Adam he made Eve and from Adam and Eve he made Cain and Abel and Seth and, and we started. Now, there is a stronghold that needs to be torn down in the church. That stronghold will prevent you from knowing God. What is the stronghold? I believe in Jesus, but I refuse to accept Genesis chapter 1, 2 and 3 and 4. You, you, I wonder if there's people in here tonight. Same thing. Why? Because you have allowed the world to tell you the beginning of man. You allowed the world to tell you who God is. You're going to let the world who, that is lost and headed for hell to tell you who God is. Really? You're going to let them tell you who God is. Let me tell you, somebody said to me, what's it matter, Terry, as long as I believe in Jesus? Well, can you tell me why you need Jesus? If you throw out Genesis, can anybody in this room throw out Genesis and tell me why you need Jesus? The whole reason you need Jesus is because of Genesis. If there's no Genesis, you don't need a Jesus. It is in Genesis that mankind falls. It is in Genesis that we are lost. Not some, all of us are lost because we all came from Adam. And Adam sinned, and sin brought death, and we all got it. And death's everywhere. And then this gets these people, and they, Satan manipulates their minds, and 
They say, no, no, God didn't form you. You're not created in the likeness and image of God. You were a tadpole that slithered out of a slimy pool of ooze and stood up one day. And you say, huh, whoa, I didn't know that. And people believe it. Really, that takes way more faith than believing that there's a God who breathes people into existence. If you want to call it faith. Paul tore it down. He walks into Athens, Greece. You know what? By the way, read the whole story. So they thought he was nuts. But you know what? Inside that giant group, he sowed those seeds. And inside, this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy, they came out and followed him. And they found out who God was. Did all of them? Uh-uh. All of them are never coming. Did you hear me? I read the book. All of them are never coming. But some of them will. Some of them will. And what's the stronghold? Evolution's one of them. You're going to find out one day that life is not from chance, random processes. It's from an all-powerful, all-knowing God. Godly weapons to knock down human reasoning. What is the weapon? The Bible. Use it. God's Word versus man's Word. I still remember that study we did with Ken Ham years ago in here. He brought everything to this conclusion. In the end, on the last day, there'll be God's Word, there'll be man's Word. Just go ahead, line yourself up under one of them. Take your chances, it's on you. God's Word or man's Word? God's Word says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We all came from one man. The Apostle Paul, 4,000 years later, 4,000 years later, he comes to Athens, Greece, and then repeats it. From one man, he created all mankind. Established every nation, established every boundary of every nation in advance. That's God's word. Or you can use man's word. Your call. Verse 7. Look at the obvious facts. Those who say they belong to Christ must recognize that we belong to Christ as much as they do. I may seem to be boasting too much about the authority given to us by the Lord, but our authority builds you up. It doesn't tear you down. So I will not be ashamed of using my authority. Does Paul have authority? Can he come into Corinth? Can he write a letter? Can he dispatch people? Can he speak on behalf of God with authority, with absolute power and authority? Yes, he can. Yes, he does. Is this pride? Which is what? Pride is confidence in yourself. Or is this faith? Confidence in the promises and the calling of God. <coughs> you see, the thing that made Paul unique is Paul was walking down the road one day and he hated Christians, hated everything about Christians. And he met Jesus. And so powerful was that encounter that you couldn't talk him out of anything after that. Why? Because he met Jesus. Have you met Jesus? So powerful is that encounter. Listen to me. So powerful is that encounter that nobody will be able to talk you out of anything when he moves inside. He's the same Jesus. We didn't get the miniaturized version. He's the same Jesus. Verse 9. 
I'm not trying to frighten you by my letters, Paul said. For some say Paul's letters are demanding and forceful. But in person, he's weak, and his speeches are worthless. <laughs> I've had some people tell me that about me. Your speeches are worthless. They're long, and they're worthless, too. Those people should realize that our actions when we arrive in person will be as forceful as what we say in our letters from far away. Paul has the commission of Jesus Christ. He has been anointed and called of God to advance the kingdom of Christ under the authority of Jesus himself. He is, listen, unstoppable. They tried, they couldn't. Verse 12, oh, don't worry. We wouldn't dare say that we are as wonderful as these other men who tell you how important they are, but they're only comparing themselves with each other, using themselves as standards of measurements. How ignorant. What is the standard of measurement? In the end, I remember having this conversation with somebody one day. They, they kind of had this idea that in the end, God graded on the curve. We all stood in, the, stood in front of God, and God graded on the curve. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to testify that when I was in school, I thought the curve was the greatest measuring standard on earth. And I hoped I was in class with people as dumb as me. God's not grading on the curve. So what's the standard? Jesus was a man. So what's the standard? Is it going to be, how does Terry compare to Clayton Rubel? That is that going to be the standard? Or, or we're going to, we're going to, what about the best guy in Lawrenceburg? Let's, we'll just pick the best guy in Lawrenceburg. No. What's the standard? Jesus. What is the standard of measurement? Man versus man or man versus Jesus, the Son of God? What is the standard? When he calls us to holiness, can somebody tell me what the call to holiness standard is? The holiness of one of us or the holiness of him? Does God grade on the curve? No, I don't think so. Verse 13, we will not boast about things done outside the area of our authority. <clears throat> we will boast only about what has happened within the boundaries of the work God has given us, which includes our working with you. We are not reaching beyond these boundaries when we claim authority over you, as if we had ever visited you, as if we never visited you, excuse me. For we were the first to travel all the way to Corinth with the good news of Christ. Over the years, I have come to this description of the church. I believe the genuine Holy Spirit-filled church is the unstoppable movement of God. I don't think any, there's any power in heaven or on earth that can stop or will stop the church. They've been trying to stop the church since the church started. Nobody can stop the church. The unstoppable movement of God is fueled by the unstoppable calling of God inside individuals such as Paul and believers today. Verse 15. No, nor do we boast and claim credit for the work someone else has done. Instead, we hope that your faith will grow so that the boundaries of our work among you will be extended. 
Then we'll be able to go and preach the good news in other places far beyond you where no one else is working. Then there will be no question of our boasting about work done in someone else's territory. As the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. Boasting in self is ignorant. But boasting in God is to give him praise and honor and the credit. There's a difference in the boasting. The kingdom of Christ is advancing. Right now, I want to say the kingdom of Christ is advancing. In America, it doesn't look like that's true. But I'm going to tell you, in the world, it's advancing. There are incredible revivals. I watched today, some of y'all may have saw it, I watched today in Mosul, which is Nineveh, in Iraq, I watched in Mosul today a video of a church youth group putting back up the cross that ISIS took off of their church. And I almost wept. It's unstoppable. ISIS came and they killed them. They drugged them into the streets. They cut their heads off. ISIS is gone from Mosul and the cross has been put back on top of the church. You can't stop it. In fact, the more you try to stop it, the more it will grow. In fact, you know what? I'm convinced the reason the church in America is struggling the way it is is because it has it too easy. It's too easy. When you, when you face opposition, it purifies the church. And it makes the church stronger. Makes it more powerful. The kingdom is advancing. Seeds are being sown for the glory of God. The question is whether or not you're going to be a part of it. The remaining question is where we fit in the kingdom. And God already knows our place. Verse 18. When, when people commend themselves, it doesn't count for much. The important thing is for the Lord to commend them. My greatest goal in life is this, and I'm not ashamed to say it here or I'll say it in unbelievers. My goal in life is this, that one day I will stand in front of Jesus and I will hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will bless you with many things. Come and share the master's happiness. Do you know where that context is? That's the parable of the talents. And you know what the parable of the talents is? God gave each one of them something. And the first two guys took what they got and they multiplied it. And what did he say to the guys that took what they had, the seeds, and multiplied it? What did he say to them? Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll bless you with many things. Come share the master's happiness. But there was a third guy in the story, right? He got seeds. What did he do with them? Went out behind his house and he buried it. You know what he did? Let me say, he's a seed hoarder. What do you do to him? Come on, what do you do to him? Take this man, take, take away from him and give it to the one who had the most. Did you hear me? Well, he's already got, no, no, no. To him who has much, more will be given on that day. 
take that guy's seeds and give it to the guy who multiplied the most seeds. And number two, take that wicked, lazy servant out into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's kind of two extremes, isn't it? Well done, good and faithful servant, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Can somebody tell me where the third category is? There is none. Father, tonight, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for the seeds that you've given each one of us. None of us knows how to create seeds. You've given us seeds called time. You've given us seeds called health. You've given us seeds called talents. You've given us seeds called money. And Lord, may we never be seed hoarders, but seed sowers for your glory. For your glory. Because when we let go, you multiply. We believe you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.